1: Thank you for tuning in to Energy Awareness Radio. This is your host, T. Love. I am the founder and CEO of the Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to providing the basic necessities of life to underprivileged children. I'm also a board-certified integrative holistic health therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where Energy Awareness Radio streams to you live each and every week. We are continuing maintaining your uh, energetic health in our Now You Know segment this week. As you know, last week you learned why meditation is vital, and hopefully, hopefully, you've all taken just five minutes each day to meditate. Remember, through practice, you achieve results. So keep meditating, and when you feel to increase the time from five minutes to six, seven, ten, or more, do it. It will help you immensely. This week, we are going to speak a little bit about living from your heart. You've heard me say that time and time again. It is really, really quite simple to be love. That's what we're made of. It's the substance from which we come. And we come in as these little bundles of beautiful love and joy. And then somehow we are trained in how to be human. And that little bundle of love, from which we all can learn much, by the way, transforms into a being with desires and beliefs, prejudices, judgments, and a boatload of other not-so-great things that were ingrained into us by our parents, siblings, friends, family, teachers, and society in general. And somewhere along the way, we lose that inherent substance of love, and that's really, really sad. Maintaining our energetic health allows us to become the love that we once were, to go back to our intuitive selves, emitting and spreading love everywhere we went. And we see this in toddlers. It's, you know, really very real and while we admit that we smile and laugh and become one with who they are, we know we only do it for microseconds at a time. Maybe that's because of fear that it's not the mature thing to do and, you know, we always must act a part of an adult. So my question is why? Why do we have to act a part of an adult? Why not keep that feeling going? You know you can. You can be the love, be the innocence, really without being immature, and you can do it easily by being aware. Conscious awareness, mindfulness, being aware of your awareness. You know when it happens, you feel it. And it feels good because in that moment of being aware of your awareness, you are in alignment with your soul and you're just swimming in the essence of love, the stuff that you're made of. So go ahead and practice that. Every time you think, why does this always happen to me? Change the thought to a more positive thought. What are the possibilities for the best outcome in this circumstance? Or what's the good that I can experience now? You will get an answer. It will happen every time. And every time you think a negative thought and shift it to a positive thought, you'll be able to shift those neural pathways in your brain, which are there, and create these ridges, and you will create new ridges that are more positive. Now, I know you can do this, Everyone can do this. You just need to practice. So when you want to judge someone or compare yourself to someone, be aware of what you're doing. Just stop and let go of the comparison or the judgment and add a little bit of discernment. And in that space, that's where you will find admiration, true admiration for not just that person, but for yourself. You know, your journey is yours. Everyone else is on their own path. and There's no need to compare or judge or be jealous or envious, you do you. Be aware. Be aware of everything that you're doing. The goal in awareness is to see beyond the view. And when you shift your thinking, in your perspective, everything seems to fall into place and your body is more relaxed, you're less reactionary, less stressful. And that allows you to make rational, informed decisions that really are best for you in every moment. You know, we all make decisions where we later determine and that really wasn't that good for me. And sometimes we learn it right away. Other times it takes days or weeks or months or even years. In any case, when we are aware, when we come from that place of love, our heart center, when we look at a positive perspective, and there always is a positive perspective, we're in flow. We're in alignment with our true purpose in life, and life is so much easier that way. When you do that, And you do get the signs, the little nuances that inspire you, that guide you, that move you to do something. It works. There is a lot of science behind mindfulness. It's overwhelming and it's positive. So be aware of your awareness. Be purposeful in your awareness. And you live from your heart and you'll experience more joy and abundance in all the areas of life doing exactly what you're meant to do, doing your soul's purpose. Now you know. We have a great show tonight. My guest is Stephen G. Post. He is the best selling author of Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Happier, Healthier Life by the Simple Act of Giving. The British Medical Journal designated his book, The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease, a medical classic of the twentieth century. He among a handful of individuals awarded the Distinguished Service Award by the National Alzheimer's Association. In two thousand one, He founded the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, which researches and distributes knowledge on kindness, giving, and spirituality. A frequent contributor to major magazines and newspapers including The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and Time Magazine, Stevens appeared on The Daily Show among other national television programs. He was invited to become one of the founding fellows of the International Society for Science and Religion the preeminent scholarly organization in his field based at Cambridge University. He received the Cama Book Award in Medical Humanities from World Literacy Canada in 2008 and the Pioneer Medal for Outstanding Leadership in Healthcare from the trustees of the Healthcare Chaplaincy Network. He is an elective member of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, the New York Academy of Medicine, and the Royal Society of Medicine in London. Stephen has served as a co-chair of the United Nations Population Fund Conference on Spirituality and Global Transformation. He's a professor in the Department of Preventive Medicine at Stony Brook University and the founder and director of the Stony Brook Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics. A leader in medicine, research, and religion... His most recent book is our topic for discussion this evening, God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to join us here at Energy Awareness Radio.
2: How are you being? Hi, T. I am being fine, and I'm happy to be with you this evening.
1: And you caught the being. I like that. Most people don't. I just loved your book. It did something, it does something to the reader, but maybe it was just this reader. I was very moved at the beginning. It was, I don't know, it was as though there were some transformation happening, and, and that's really not the correct word. Maybe it is. I honestly don't know. I just know it hit me in a way that was very heartfelt, and you could feel something coming from the book. And throughout, I was laughing, I was crying. It was a very interesting read, and I just, it's an amazing life that you've had. And to share it with all of us is truly an honor for us to receive. I was totally, totally moved. Uh, So there was much to your book. And I don't, you know, I honestly don't even know where to begin because I read it and I thought, there's so much here. (laughs) There's just so much here. So I'll ask you what it was that was the catalyst for you to put this pen to paper and say, I'm going to write my
2: story. I wanted other people to be able to speak freely about those uncanny moments of synchronicity, uh, call it winks and whispers from uh, an infinite mind, however you want to think about it, but just those moments of Connectivity sometimes in response to uh, a time of need or even possibly desperation, but maybe just uh, on any old occasion. But that feeling that somehow uh, an encounter um, was too perfectly set up in the universe, in your life, to be just a matter of chance. And so. You know, I've taught medical schools at Chicago, Ann Arbor, 20 years at Case, and now at Stony Brook. And most of my scientific colleagues are, I'll call them materialists or physicalists. And the idea that, that there's a, a side to life and to reality that indicates how cherished we are by an unseen and wonderfully loving infinite power, infinite God Uh, it's great to let people be freed up so they can speak about these things
1: I think a lot of people don't notice that until later in life but you very early on noticed these patterns because was it the dream that you had that started it or did you notice things prior
2: to that dream well you know I was always inclined towards Spiritual classics. I was actually born in Babylon, Long Island, South Shore, and uh, I went up to a high school in New Hampshire, uh, an Episcopal school called St. Paul's in Concord, and uh, I was there a couple of years. You know, I was known for walking down the wooded paths and reading Siddhartha and other such things. And (laughs) and uh, uh, when I was 15, I had a dream, you know, a literal dream, and I wasn't a big dreamer. Uh, uh, but um, this was pretty uncanny uh, It would be early in the morning I'd I just sort of gotten up But I wasn't fully awake And over a period of about a year and a half I had a recurring dream It recurred about a half a dozen times and I would talk about it with my friends With my, with my philosophy teachers up there Rod Wells in particular uh, And uh, it was amazing So uh, I, I would see this silver mist, a very thick mist uh, and it, and, it, and it was leading out on a road to the west. I had no idea where exactly and then I would look to my left and I would see the contours of a face of a young man with stringy blonde hair who was uh, about to jump off a ledge of some kind and then Uh, The mist would dissipate, and I saw, and I didn't believe in angels, by the way, at all at the time, but I would see the face of a blue angel. And in a very soft, calming voice, um, the angel would say, if you save him, you too shall live. And I had no idea what this was. I thought maybe I'd had a dyspeptic hot dog, or I had to work (laughs) off a few the merits in the hot sun the day before <laughs> raking leaves. I mean, really, you know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and,
2: and, and, but but because it recurred uh, a number of times, and I'd be able to talk about it up there. It was kind of like it was like a Harry Potter setting, you know. We had a big dining hall <laughs> with wooden beams, and and I would talk uh, to my friends about this. And my sacred studies teacher Rod Wells, who was a friend of Alan Watts, uh, he was a graduate of El Div School, so. When I was like 16, um, he took an interest in in the dream and in in adolescent spirituality, so we drove from Concord, New Hampshire, down to New Haven. It was the first time I'd been to New Haven. And I was the subject of a class on adolescent spirituality that a professor named James Diddies taught. He was a famous Jungian psychologist of religion. And I told him about the dream and these Divinity School students, about 15 of them. They asked me what it meant. And I said, well, I, you know, we all read Emerson up in, up in Concord. Uh, but for me, I think I'm the only one who really believes it that were somehow our minds are not just brain and cells and tissues, but our minds are mysterious, part of a larger infinite mind and 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 that we're more connected than we than we realize and and we can have premonitions and we can have uh, these kinds of very powerful spiritual connectivities. So uh, I told them about that, and then they and they asked me by the way, so did the dream make you do anything that was unusual? I said, "Yeah, I applied. Like no St. Paul's kid ever did. I applied to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, because it was out in the west, and Robert Bly was teaching poetry there. Uh, so, uh, and like you know, it, it, and and that was the dream. And the dream I I never knew if it was meaningful really until uh, it actually unfolded.
1: Yeah, and you, but you always it seems like you always understood it in a way that it meant something it wasn't just well i don't know what that's all about and forget about it you contemplated it and knew that there's something more to it which for someone who's you know so young is
2: amazing well i thought it was more than anxiety you know i i mean mm-hmm. i thought it was I, I i mean i i recognized uh you know that people are creating meaning all the time because they sort of have to to get by in life, you know, otherwise you're just running on empty. But but because it's occurred six times and it was so exactly detailed and, and clear in every repetition, I, you know, I talked about this in our sacred studies class. I had lots of great classmates. uh uh you know it was so uh, and people were skeptical but they liked me enough and I wasn't overbearing about it so we could actually talk and I was reading Carl Jung at the time because I got it. I wrote my senior thesis there on synchronicity and then the amazing thing was that so I was supposed to go to Swarthmore and and um um I went home when I that that summer of my 17th year uh and you know uh my teacher Rod Wells had gotten me a job tutoring in the Bronx, and I'd done that in Concord with the French-Canadian kids, and I really loved it. It was very gratifying, and my mom and dad said, nope, you're not going to do that because the Bronx is too dangerous. We've had it looked into. It's too dangerous, and we had a pretty good argument for a couple of days, and uh, finally, my mom said, you know, uh, you're on your own. If you insist on this, you're really on your own for college, and and then I, I you know, I kind of, at that point, relented, and, and I said, okay, I won't take this job, but what am I going to do this summer? And my dad, Henry Poe, he was the president of W&J Sloan's Furniture Store on Fifth Avenue, which was kind of across from Scribner's books. And uh-huh. uh, he knew, like, every manufacturer of lamps, of desks, of chairs, of beds across greater New York. And he said, I know what you can do. You can work in Bill DeBono's lampshade factory in Patchogue. So, for two weeks, okay, I actually drove <laughs> to Patchogue, Long Island, and, and and I drove my dad's secondhand gray Mercedes 190, which tended to break down. And it, was, it had seen better days. And um, and I cut cardboard between two really large Italian women, respectfully stated, and it was all smoky and. Bill would supervise us with his big cigar. And after two weeks, you know, uh, Friday night, I had my Siddhartha book in my, in my pocket. I had my classical guitar and 50 bucks, and I drove out to West Hampton Beach, which was kind of a hangout. And I had a couple of friends from St. Paul's who lived out there in the summers. And about 11 at night, I said, you know, um, I'm going to follow the dream. I really don't want to go to college anyway, not right now, and I'm just driving west. So we said goodbye, and I got in that Mercedes, and I drove west on the Sunrise Highway. I drove uh, uh, through the Midtown Tunnel. I drove across the George Washington Bridge for the first time ever, west of the bridge, and there were two signs. So one said 95 South, but the other said Route 80 West. And my was <laughs> about the West, you know. So I said, "That's it." And, you know, it's probably about, you know, one in the morning now, and, and I'm driving west, and I got through the water gap, and I got out to Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Now it's like maybe 4.30 or 5 in the morning, right in the middle of the state, and I've never been out there before. And lo and behold, I'm getting a little bit uh, doubtful about about my, my dream and my vision and my call to the west, so I was going to turn around. I was going to do a U-turn around the midway and just go back, and my reputation would have been untarnished. Nobody would have known this. (laughs) But unbelievably, cars back then had generators. And when the generator broke, like, the lights went out immediately. The engine died completely. And so I was just able to get to the right shoulder. And and obviously I wasn't going to turn around. And I thought, well, this must be a sign that I'm not supposed to turn around. So I'm supposed to go west. And I took, I, 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 there were only cornfields and wheatfields as far as the eye could see. <laughs> literally, you know, if you get out there, 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 were, there were no, this is somewhat near Lewisburg, there were no phone booths, nothing. So um, what, what I did was I pulled a piece of paper out of the glove compartment and I wrote in pencil to the Pennsylvania State Police. <laughs> please, please return this car to Henry A.V. Post. 44 Davison Lane East West Islip New York 516 from his son Stephen who no longer works in the lampshade factory you were very polite. <laughs> oh no, it was terrible it was there i you know i deserve a slap from the almighty but no,
1: i thought it was great i was like he's very you know, polite
2: it's very nice yeah, it was, yeah i tried to write nicely you know and yes. and and, and, and uh, y- y- you know uh so uh, I put my thumb out, and it was just kind of barely dawn, and a big white truck came by, and, and the guy flung the door open immediately, and he said, my name's Gary. Where are you headed? I said, "West." He said, well, I can get you to Chicago. So I got in there with my guitar and my Siddhartha book and, and my 50 bucks, and my journey had begun. And and the whole thing to me, you know, looking back on it, was just so perfect and so set up. The thing is, like the dream, the dream was a lure. The dream pulled me to the west. But yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure of it. It was the push, the wonderful push of this argument at my home, and working in Bill DeBono's lampshade factory. That was what pushed me. So there had to be a pull as well as a push.
1: And it worked. And now, do you think, because I, this happens a lot with people, and I, I, I'm an energy therapist, I sound therapist, energy and positive psychology, and so when people come in and tell me things, I can relate easily with a lot of the things that they tell me. I, lucid dreaming usually happens in the morning, and that's typically when I get my messages, if you will, because I'll have a lucid dream and I'll think, okay, this is something I need to, to pay attention to. And I do until something evolves, or maybe it never does, or maybe I just don't know, and it did. But do you think you were having that, because you said it's in the morning, I thought, oh, lucid dreaming.
2: Yeah, well, early, you know, early in the morning, I mean, we had chapel at St. Paul's at 8 o'clock required every every morning. And so, you know, I might have the dream it could be, you know, about 5. I was usually an early rise, maybe 5, 5.30 in the morning.
0: Mm-hmm. And then,
2: uh, you know, I'd get up, have a, have a, a, you know a little bit of breakfast, but then I'd go to the old chaplain i'd sit on this uh wooden pew that i liked and i'd kind of meditate about the dream and pray a little bit and that was the kind of guy i was i was pretty unusual uh my classmates acknowledged that you know i saw them at a reunion in june and uh uh, but yeah it was very vivid and and uh, it was it was that sort of early morning sense of the of you know being beyond space and time really and and mm-hmm. you know, you know it, you're it, you're you know,
1: aware but yeah you're aware but you know you're not fully awake
2: right that was it yeah yeah so like, anyway and i now, got to grant oh go mm-hmm. ahead yeah no no go right ahead well, you know, so I, so so Gary was great. Gary was a, a a really prayerful. He was kind of an evangelical guy, and he asked mm-hmm. me to call my mom, which I said I wasn't ready to do quite yet. But yep. he dropped me off at of Grant Park, and I and they were having a protest, and I played, you know, like via Lobos and Granados on my classical guitar, and doubled my money, and I got a ride with a bunch of hippies, and we got out to, to, we went through Omaha, so eighty goes through Nebraska, just mm-hmm. before we got to Lincoln. One of the hippie gals said to me, you know, you really ought to call your mom. And I finally said, okay. So they pulled over to a phone booth, and I called Collect, of course. And my mom said, oh, Stevie, you're alive. We can call off the Pinkertons. And I said, Mom, you called the Pinkertons? Why? Didn't you get my note?
0: (laughs) That was terrible.
2: And and she said, well, we got your note, and, and Dad got the card. Toed back, it's in the shop. And now, where are you going? We should have let you tutor in the Bronx, right? And I said, Yeah, absolutely. But now I'm going west. And do you have Cousin George's address? So, my cousin George had been to Vietnam and he was living in the Mission District in the Bay Area. And uh, he was a really interesting guy. So, I went to 4 Chenery Street and I slept on George's floor and there was a Nichiren Shosho Buddhist temple down on Market in Cherry, and I was chanting Nam-yoho-renge-kyo, and I was playing guitar in Hispanic restaurants and making money, and I was never going to go to college, uh, but I drew a bad draft number, a really bad draft number, and so I called the people at Reed in Oregon, and I said, hey, I know I told you I'm not coming, but I need a spot, and they let me in. So this is where it gets unbelievable for, you know, n- uh, you know, f- for the average rationalist, but to me it was like a revelation. So about seven in the morning, early September, i 'm in front of the temple, and i 'm with uh, George, a bunch of members of the temple, and then an old Japanese guy named Gus, who'd been interned in Hawaii during the war. and He was kind of my mentor, and they gave me a gohon zone, which is mm-hmm. if you google it it's a it 's a scroll. And it's got, like, sacred symbols that mean, you know, universal mind, uh, uh, infinite mystery, and those kinds of things. And so, I, uh, you know, Gus explained it to me, and I put it in my backpack. I said goodbye to everybody, and I took the Market Street bus, and I had to get off, take another bus to Golden Gate Park. And I walked across the park, and there I was at the foot of the Golden Gate Bridge. And I... It's like you know i walked I walked on the left side, the pedestrian uh, rampway, and it was totally misty. I could only see like about maybe three feet in front of my nose and hmm. um, and I got to the middle of that bridge, and I heard this kind of shuffling to my left, and I looked and I squinted, and I saw the contours of the face that i thought was the face of my dream it was anyway a young guy with stringy blonde hair and he was leaning out on the ledge and about to jump and he kind of caught me uh through the corner of his eye and i looked at him and i said very quietly and you know pretty pretty kindly you know and then i said i truly hope you're not planning to jump and he got so pissed he he yelled at me because I'd interrupted him, you know, and, and he started quoting from Macbeth, like the world is empty nothingness. This was not a dumb guy, and yeah. um and, and and I said, you know, we do that at St. Paul's and Memorial Hall, but it sounds a lot more realistic when you're out on a <laughs> ledge about to jump, and 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 you know. But I, I we're all desperate, you know, and, and I'm desperate, and you're desperate, and I could be where you are, and you could be where I am. So I said, look, I want you to do me a favor let me tell you that I think I'm here to meet you for a reason. I just somehow think this was ordained. And he didn't believe me at all. He shot back some stuff. And then I said, let me just tell you, I had this dream at St. Paul's when I was 15 a little bit into my 16th year. And and, and I told him about the dream and, and told him about going to Yale Divinity School. I told him about the argument with my folks, and I told him about, you know, leaving the car on Route 80 near Lewisburg, and I told him about all of this stuff, and and he was, he he thought I was crazy, and I said, well, look, you know, I may be crazy, but you're the one on the ledge, so I, I said, look, I, I, make me a promise, I have this thing in my backpack, and so I pulled out my Gajon zone, which I'd only had, like, for an hour, right? Right. Uh, and, and so I pulled it out, and I said, look, they tell me at the temple, that if you have a Cajon Zone, it'll turn your life around. All the bad things will eventually come out good and it'll work out. And so I said I, I, I'm going to unscroll this. And I unscrolled it and I said if you come over the railing, which was about waist high, now it's like chest high because you know, they don't want people jumping. But then it was right. really low. So he just walked over. He actually came over Uh, It was amazing to me, and I explained some of the symbols as far as I knew them, and I said, I'd like to give this to you, but you have to make me a promise. And he said, what's that? And I said, you have to walk south on the bridge, walk across the park, take the bus, get the Market Street bus to Chenery, and here's a note to my cousin George. And um, he said, cousin George this is Harry. He needs a shower. Please let him sleep on the floor where I was. Take him down to the temple, introduce him to Gus, and see if you can take care of him. And so, you know, we we chatted a little more. And then um, Harry walked south. I walked north because I was going toward Oregon. And In fact, when I got to the north end of the bridge, I, I had my thumb out, and a farmer's truck came by. I can never forget this. And, and, and a nice old guy opened the opened the door, and he said, where are you going? And I said, Oregon. And uh, he said, "Well, we can get you most of the way. My name's Dwayne Dill, D-I-L-L, just like in Dill Pickle. And this here's my <laughs> wife, Dorothy. We're from Santa Rosa. And and I got it, and they got me up. But as I was walking on the bridge and and driving up to Oregon that, that morning, I felt somehow um, I had discovered something totally unanticipated. But that that I'd had a dream, you know, two two years earlier." in Concord, New Hampshire, and 3,000 miles away. And yet somehow or another, in the crazy quantum mystery of the universe, I had had this perfectly set up encounter um, with the young guy who I felt was exactly the person I'd seen in my dream and somehow or another, I've been able to connect with him in such a way <clears throat> that um, he actually came in off the ledge. And I and I thought, you know, there's something about mind and you know, I mean, Larry Dossi wrote the foreword to God and Love on Route 80, and,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: you know, he's written Premonition and One Mind and so forth. And I think he's a genius. Uh, but there's something about that, and somehow I was fortunate enough at a young age to feel that very strongly. And that changed my life. I mean, my life was never the same after that event on the bridge. Yeah.
1: I don't think anybody's would be, you know, it's, it's, it's a crazy story, but it's crazy real. And, and as you have in the forward of your book, the astrophysicist Sir James Jean, the gist of what he says is that we are all of one mind. And I've always believed that we all are a piece of who or whatever is the God of our understanding. So whether you say the creator, spirit, source, universe, God, whatever, it, we're all a piece of that. And I'm going to put in the infinite mind as you refer to to that space as part of it. That could be someone's God of their understanding is the, in the infinite mind, which I found interesting because I read the book and I thought, infinite mind, oh, that's like instant messaging, I am and you're getting it in from the infinite mind. So I thought interesting that he had this dream and then 2 years later it actually comes to fruition and you never had the dream after
2: you started the journey to the west coast, correct? Yeah, I never needed the dream again, especially right. especially after that encounter. I mean, you know, I mean, there were, you know, there were, the book is like an episode of of these sorts of uh it's a series of episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean like so so I got up to read and I mean Robert Bly taught Jung in poetry and other people of interest were there. Uh, even jobs was floating around at the time. But uh I I um I even took a course on uh called Alchemy one oh one which was quantum physics and the history of medieval science. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. So I mean, mm-hmm. but in late January that year uh, it doesn't snow in Oregon, but it gets rainy a lot. And um, so uh, on a pretty cold late January night, I was sitting in the coffee shop with a bunch of friends, and a guy came bounding in through the doors. We'd never seen him before. He said, my name's Andy. I got a brand-new Harley Davidson shovelhead, fastest bike in the world. <laughs> and who wants to go for a ride? And He had you know, motorcycle jacket on. He was a little bit wild-eyed. And I said, I'll go, and so I went out into the slush. I jumped on the back of this thing, and and screaming into the night, he tore off. He hit like 140 in maybe like two minutes. He went through every red light, every stop sign. Went out to the Pacific Coast Highway, headed south, hit 180, okay, sliding in the slush, and I thought I was dead. I was actually crying on the back of the bike. I said, Please, let me off, let me off. <laughs> We're not going to make it. And he was just screaming into the night with the wind and the rain pelting our faces. And finally, about an hour later, he actually did this incredible U turn, sort of almost Evil Knievel style. And at the same speed, he dropped me off exactly where he had picked me up in front of the collection and, and I was like totally dazed and I I I I managed uh I sort of stumbled across the bridge there was a ravine and then Ackerman dormitory and and I walked into just crossed the threshold into the dorm and there was a there's a big common room and there's a, a payphone on the wall on the right and I'd given the number to my mom you know when I got up to read and and I never answered the phone like no one could get in touch with me. I mean I was just very much far away from anybody uh you know back east <laughs> and and uh, I felt kind of pushed you know to pick up the phone and believe it, so I picked up the phone because it was ringing just as I crossed the threshold. the phone started ringing, so I picked it up, I said hello and now, it's my mom. Now, it's 11 at night in, town, in Oregon. It's 2 in the morning in New right. York. And it's my mom. And she said, Oh, I just woke up. I had this terrible dream. I thought you were dead. I was sweating. I was never so scared are you alive? I said, Mom, I'm kind of alive. I mean, I'm almost not alive and I explained what happened. <laughs> and my mom was kind of a mystic. I mean, they, the McGee family, they owned a potato farm in Bridgehampton, New York on uh, on uh, Ocean Road and, and she was kind of, you know, and we sort of agreed that there's a mystery to the mind, that it's not just the local mind, it's not just biology, but there's something about mind before matter, that, that, that mind isn't just Derived from matter, but there's something about mind that is universal and cosmic, and I think we both kind of agreed on that. And she even I I told she actually painted a picture, the Blue Angel Dream, which I have in the book, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, But but those kinds of things, you know, I mean, uh, in that period of my life, just totally convinced me that that there's there's something so much deeper. Uh, to this universe, and we are so cherished and so loved, and, 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 uh, and we just don't fully appreciate it sometimes.
1: We don't, which is really sad, because there is in your book, I believe it's on page 157, because I did mark this off. <laughs> you have a quote by Emmett Fox, and mm-hmm. one of the things, the quote is, there is no difficulty that enough love will not conquer. No disease that enough love will not heal. No door that enough love will not open. No gulf that enough love will not bridge. No wall that enough love will not throw down. No sin that enough love will not redeem. And I read that and I thought, yeah, that's very true. Then why is it? What is it about mankind? What is it about humans that... We allow history to repeat itself so often that we're not learning that love truly is the way that being love, coming from love. There's only two emotions, fear and love, everything negative is fear. everything positive is love. Why, why don't we learn when you come from that place of love, everything is in alignment and flows beautifully and life is good. When are we going to learn? Why aren't we learning that? Do you have any wisdom you can offer on that?
2: Well, You know, um, human nature is a mixed bag. I mean, if you read the newspapers any day, you'll pick that up. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, human love, to me anyway, um, it it can be wonderful. I mean, the love of a mother for a son like my mom had for me or a mother for a child in general is the most incredible example of pure love. But even that sometimes... Uh, is unwise or myopic and you know we we you know we bribe coaches at Yale or USC to let our mm-hmm. kids in you know we do dumb things well, sometimes it's non existent raise...
1: too
0: yeah
2: <laughs> yeah i mean and and, yeah. and, and there this in group tendency so you know uh you know we we love people who are more like us than unlike us and there are all these studies now on uh, implicit bias and, and you know it's really pretty powerful so I, I you know, um I I believe that there is a higher love. Um you know, I mean I was a great friend of Sir John Templeton, the investor for many years and
0: mm-hmm. he
2: wanted me to start an institute to study not human love but the love that made humans, this sort of divine love that underlies all of reality and 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 is the fizz and the energy that, 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 that if we can connect with that's the love so so I was sitting here, I mean, just in real quick response, I was sitting here in my office with a medical student who, this is like some years ago, so quite a number of years ago, five years, six years ago, and she was thinking about leaving school, and she was a wonderful um, Asian-American gal from uh, Queens, uh, from Northern Boulevard, and had grown up real poor, and she wasn't adjusting well to the to the culture of the place, and so... I, she came to my door, and I, and and you know, sort of just people do that with me. I don't know why it is, but but I sort of have a little bit of an informal role and in just sort of helping people along on life's way, and 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 so I I had many meetings that afternoon, that, you know, wall to wall meetings across the school, and I I said, look, I, I I don't think I can talk with you now, but you can email me. Maybe I'll see you in a week or so. And then I, I felt, it was really uncanny, I, I felt this incredible, warm energy, and it sort of was, I thought it was actually over my right shoulder. I'm sitting in that chair right now, you know, and I looked, I turned around, and I, there was nothing there, of course, but I felt this incredible energy of love, and, and I felt, you know, this is a message to me that I have to really love this person right now, not, not tomorrow, but right now. Mm-hmm. So, I became her mentor, and she did leave school for a year and i because of that experience i had I visited her every couple of weeks at a coffee shop on Northern Boulevard in flushing and she did journaling I, I i mentored her a paper that she wrote and i and and she you know she's doing very well now, but I just had this energy that wasn't coming from me and so so I feel like you know when human nature connects with that. Eternal essence. We all have a, that inner light, you know. When we really connect with that and and make it the guiding force of our lives, and sometimes, you know, if we're in ignoring it, it will sort of invade us. Not like we're, it's it, 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 you know, we, we're asking for it, but it's kind of irresistible, you know. Um, <clears throat> that that can happen. And so I, I believe in this eternal love, and uh, that's why when Sir John, Sir John, faxed me from. Leifert Key in Nassau in 2000, he said, you need to start an institute that studies not just human love, but but the love that made humans, whatever that is.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: uh, I, said, I responded, I said, Sir John, what should we call it? He responded, the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. Now, I'm at Case Western Med School, and I'm doing like Alzheimer's genetics. And I responded, I said, Sir John, maybe we should call it the Institute for Creative Altruism. He shot back, no. Unlimited love, up to eight point nine million dollars, and I did what you would have done, T. I backed Sir <laughs> John. I love that language; it yeah. right off the page.
0: And <laughs> he was so right.
2: right. He was so right. He was so right. You know, Cause, you know, and, and 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 we funded all these studies on the spiritual experience that people have. We did a survey, a random survey of five thousand Americans, and it showed that eighty percent of Americans will say they've had an uncanny experience of a higher love now it, it doesn't always it's not always a direct kind of a mystical thing but they'll say it came through another person it was just this perfectly timed sort of synchronistic moment and in answer to a need there was this perfect person and it was it was an answer to a prayer and and it was so perfect it was set up by the universe and 40% of americans say they feel that more than once in their life and about 30% say they feel it quite a few times, about 20% say they feel it uh, somewhat frequently and there's 10% who say they feel that way all the time. That's pretty good. That's the way we all should feel. Yeah, that's how that's how we were made to be, you know. That's, that's, right. that's what spirituality is. Yep.
1: Just be that. One of the things that I read in your book that I found interesting and I would like to ask you to elaborate on is the test for infinite love is the manner of response for infinite adversity. Mm-hmm. And I read that a few times, and I thought, okay, I get this. This, this. this is good. The test for infinite love is the manner of response for infinite adversity. But would you please elaborate on that?
2: Well, you know, I mean, people, um, people face adversity, uh, and we all do. And sometimes it can be really, really deep. These profound betrayals, uh, very hurtful, and 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 it can be in the workplace. It can even be in your family, you know. And um, the, the the test of of, of of a great soul is um, that you control the manner of your response to that adversity. And if you can respond in love, then you have really achieved something. And and by the way, you know, even though I, I mean, I I eventually I. I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School and studied with Mersha Eliade and Joseph Campbell and all kinds of amazing people. I got out of immunology at Penn, and I decided I was going to follow the dream to Chicago, and that was a good move. <laughs> but the thing is that that um, uh, I remain still uh, Episcopalian, and I do occasionally, I'll, you know, somewhat regularly, I'll go to Mass because I just feel like the interesting thing about the life of Jesus, even though, you know, I, I'm not creedalist, I'm, I don't have a lot of, I believe in such and such, but the fact that he faced so much adversity, but then he could still say, forgive them for they know not what they do. That mm-hmm. there's something so special about that forgiving love, even when you're being hurt very badly, that, you know, I have to take it seriously. I'm very humble about that. And if it's if anything could be atoning, that would be it. Yes,
1: yes, and it, it you can. It's funny because in life you find, or I find, that there are times when you can easily, easily do that, and there are other times where I just know I can't. I can't forgive that person. I can't. I can't give them the compassion they're looking for. I'm not. I'm not doing a good job with that in some cases because the hurt is so deep, and you have to really go deep within to do that. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And the more sincere you can be, and eventually you'll come around, but it is not an easy thing to do.
2: Yeah, key word. Thank you, T. Eventually. So you know, there are these gimmicky books that come out left and right about you know forgiving, you know the three easy steps. I mean, yeah. I, look, it doesn't work that way. I mean, for me, um, I mean, you know, there are three or four times in my life when I've really, really felt deeply uh, hurt and deeply betrayed. Um, yep. I mean, I have to ask, so I have to, it's like fourth stepping in AA. I have to ask myself, wait a minute, didn't I have something to do with that interaction? Wasn't I mm-hmm. part of the conversation? So I have to take some ownership. I just can't demonize that terrible person back there in, you know, 2008. The other thing, is, so, so time helps. You know, time gives me yes. a different perspective, but also helping others. So the more I can... Contribute to the lives of others. You know, focus in on, you know, working with uh, uh, deeply forgetful people. I call them people with dementia. I do a lot of that, doing clinical consultations and ethics, doing, um, you know, all kinds of things with students and my family and and so forth. The, the, you know, the more I can I can get my mind off the self and the problems of the self, and then just let time work its magic and give me a deeper perspective, then I mature my way through. So I call that the expanding canvas. You know, That's that's a great line.
1: That's right. That's a great line because you do have to do that. You do have to, you know, sometimes you need that time for the, the different perspectives so that you can. And you do look back and say, what part, what role did I play? What part was I in all of that? And see where you can. Forgive yourself because we all need to do that, and that's probably harder than forgiving someone else. And then sometimes when you realize you were a part of it, it's easy to forgive them, and then you can't forgive yourself as easily. You're kicking yourself for playing the role that you played, you know. But one other thing that you said uh, in your your book is that you stated – now, we're always taught make goals, take action, follow those goals. And I read this line and I laughed because I thought, wow, there goes the goals right out the window. You stated that goals are desperate detours from destiny. And that actually made a lot of sense to me. And I thought, wow, nobody's ever put it that way because we're so trained. You have to have a goal. You have to have a goal. You have to have a goal. But sometimes the goals take us away from what we're truly supposed to be doing. And is that what you meant by that? Goals are desperate detours from destiny.
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, um, I mean – most kids from St. Paul's they go to you know super duper eastern schools and they go to Wall Street or they you know they they you know whatever they do you know they go they they're investors they're lawyers and whatever and you know um uh I when I mean when I when I took that car that summer of my 17th year and headed west uh, I, I was I was not going to Swarthmore. I was giving up all those kinds of goals because I just felt that somehow, even though I didn't understand the dream or even fully believe it, I felt a kind of lure to follow it, and I was pushed too, like I said, you know. But I also mm-hmm. felt full, and my whole life I've ne- I've always you know I get up in the morning, five five thirty in the morning, and I meditate and pray and I. Envision all the people I'm going to see in the day and how I can respond to them, whether they need forgiveness or compassion or I call it care frontation or, you mm-hmm. know, whatever they might need. I try to really focus in on that. And I and I, and I, I, I am uh, trying to um, stay on Route 80. And I stayed on Route 80 surprisingly all my life. People ask me where I'm from. I say I'm from Route 80. Cause, cause you really I'm, are. <laughs> yeah, I, life isn't something you make. I mean, if people say I made my life, look, I've been a professor in a lot of places, I've written a lot, of, but if I made my life, no, mm-hmm. I I I followed my journey, I followed my destiny, and 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 like Joseph Campbell would say, you know, I was open to surprises, and I responded to the people that somehow the universe brought into my path. And I tried to respond with creativity, and I've encountered a lot of amazing people you know but uh uh you know, I didn't make my life i i I followed a path that came to me in a dream when I was fifteen, and I'm still on it you know i'm 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 not a young whippersnapper anymore, but i'm I, you know I still have a lot of energy and I'm still boyish use <laughs> I, I describe my i i speak as the boy in the book you know because we never can give we should never give up, like you were saying earlier, we should never give up on that inner child, that youthful child of love, you know, and the world I mean my greatest fear in life when I was a high schooler was to be slowly digested by an immoral universe. I mean I, I mean that was my fear and and uh, you know and, and and I'm just grateful always grateful that I've been able to follow my dream.
1: And you do, and you did, and that is a great segue because we're getting toward the top of the hour, so I'm going to ask you two questions that the audience members, unless they've read the book, will not know what I'm talking about, <laughs> and, and that's a good thing because now you have to go out and get the book. This is a wonderful book. It really well. I said at the beginning, I laughed, I cried, I smiled, I nodded in agreement. Sometimes I just shook my head and said, why didn't I see that? I mean, that is so real, it is so true, and I got a lot out of it, and the feeling that came from the book it was at times the the things were speaking to me and i was feeling something within my own being so your book truly made a difference to me and i think it will transform others as well but my two questions okay so do you still wear or have the
2: ring with the green stone my green ring yes so yeah i got that in cambridge mass uh, you know, I was, I, was, I was there with some friends, and this was after the dream, and, and uh, uh, you know, I used to read a little bit about colors, and, the, you know, the medieval mystics used to say uh, uh, that green was the color of the Holy Spirit. So I have this green ring, and I, I, I also have a blue ring, which I got later, but most days I wear this uh, green uh, stone ring uh, with a silver base to it. And my wife complains because I never wear a wedding pin. I always wear my, (laughs) my green ring, you know. What's but the absolutely. stone? Is
1: it glass or is it a stone? Is it an actual it's stone. stone? It's
2: yeah, it's, it's an emerald stone, I guess, you know. It's, okay. It's,
1: it's All right. I was wondering if it was anything. an emerald. Yep.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: I was wondering. Yeah. Okay, and the, and the last question I have for you, and this was because it hit me in the book. I had to go back and read it again. I was like, Wait, did I just read that? Emily Post is your grandfather's first wife. I love her. Is that true?
2: <laughs> yeah, so my grandfather uh was Edwin Main Post and um he uh, was you know was an investor in New York, and um, uh, he married a debutante named Emily Price, who, uh, who was the daughter of Bruce Price, an architect from Baltimore, and she became Emily Post, and uh, they had two sons. Uh, and then my my grandfather, I just got to be honest, you know. He had an affair with a beautiful Broadway dancer. Okay. I'm just saying, you know,
1: that, end, that ended that.
2: It, it happens. <laughs> we all know. have
1: skeletons, it, Stephen, it's good. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of
2: scandalous at the time. So they went their different ways and but but, but uh the, you know, those two sons were my dad's half brothers. So so Edwin Post, you know, Emily's son actually wrote me my reference letter for Saint Paul's when I was a kid and and so I met her just you know like once or twice, you know not much uh you know, just in passing, I mean there was some friction between the the different ends of the family, but I'm no blood relationship with with emily but but uh but you know my 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 you know edwin main post uh it was my grandfather and uh and i try to i try to mind my manners. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I love it and I wish more people would. We need more etiquette training in this world because that's gone out the window. Common courtesy is pretty, is, is pretty much dead too and it's bothersome. And I really, I read that and I started laughing because I had a conversation about 10 years ago with someone and said, we need to bring back etiquette schools. People are not People are not properly t- treating other people. It's going downhill very quickly, and now
2: I see it's virtually gone.
1: I don't know who's the buying the basics. book. I have a copy.
2: <laughs> just the basics. I mean, just the basics. Yes, so please. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank I you. I mean, if we could yes. just get back to that, it would it would make a huge difference. And the the, the discourse has has become so uncivil. And we're so acrimonious and un yep. ungenerous with one another. I, you know, it's hard to believe. Um and it's you know.
1: it's out there in society in a very big way from the top down and poor people think it's okay. And it's not.
2: It's, it's not.
1: not. Just because not. you know, it's just not. And yeah, I, I had to ask that question because I thought, Oh my god, I love her. This is so cool. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's 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 not okay. And and, and and how's it going to come back? Well, not through politics. It's got to come back no. through a kind of spiritual renaissance where people realize that, you know, namaste. You know, I believe in that, you know, that yeah. I honor the divine in you and you honor the divine in me. And we may differ. We may have differing opinions and perspectives on some serious items. But you know what? Um, That's what makes the world We to go love around. each other. We've got to love yep. each other.
1: Yeah, you just have to love the fact that we're all pieces of the same puzzle, we just don't, we're not privy to the picture. And if we just play out our puzzle piece in a way that's very loving, the picture will be beautiful. And Mm -hmm. if we play it out a different way, it could be a very stormy scene. And, you know, I personally would like to to be part of a beautiful picture. So we are almost at the top of the hour, though. And before we go, I would like to mention that your book, God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness, is available online at Amazon and other places, correct? And you can get it in your local bookstores, too?
2: Yeah, Amazon's probably the easiest, but yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then, please visit unlimitedloveinstitute.org. Please, please visit that. This is a. I got the brochure on that. Uh, uh, Dea sent it to me, and I just was, um, uh, you know, I just love it. It's a great organization. So please, everybody, check that out. And you know, the holiday season's coming. Nice to buy books for people, give them something to do during the cold winter months here in, you know, New Jersey and up in New England where I'm from. So you know, get that book. There
2: you go.
0: <laughs>
1: I yep. want to thank God you, Eden, so 80, much. You know, I'm
2: so <laughs> yes. grateful to be with you.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I'll be talking to you in just a few seconds. Okay, listeners, we need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a very challenging and constantly changing world. That's why I have the guests that I do, to keep you apprised so you won't get lost in the dross of life. We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life we are meant to live productively, healthfully, and purposefully. And this is where you find the tools to do just that. So send the link for this show to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you just had so they may learn and grow and make the world a better place for all. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next week for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. You'll find an archived list of past shows, the lineup for upcoming shows, as well as information about other upcoming events I'll be hosting, including my sound healing concerts and labyrinth walks. Please check out Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, where every dollar of every donation directly supports children in need, 100%. We are run solely by volunteers. There are no salaries, stipends, or compensation of any kind to anyone. And you'll learn about our fundraising campaigns, and you can see exactly where the money goes and how it helps kids in need. So at Soji Huggles, we are investing in a brighter tomorrow by giving them a better today. Thank you for taking time to visit our website, sojihuggles.org. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at both NRG Aware Radio and at Soji Huggles. And please like us on Facebook at Soji Huggles Children's Foundation. I am your host, T Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well.